Well, good morning to you again. We um, are continuing uh, a sermon series in the book of Ezekiel, one of the Old Testament prophets, and we are uh, this Sunday in the 14th chapter of Ezekiel. So if you're curious where that is, about the middle of your Bible or the Psalms, and you keep going to the right, you'll go through uh, other poetic books, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. You'll get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then comes Ezekiel. And uh, in chapter 14, um, well, rather than describe any of it to you, I'm just going to start reading it. Beginning in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 11. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to me, Son of man, son of Adam. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of the iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of this house of Israel who takes idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. Indeed, these are the words of God, and we lift up our thanks together, saying, thanks be to God. So we have been in the book of Ezekiel for some time now. We're in what's called the first temple vision, which began at chapter 8, and it goes until about the, the, the temple vision and then kind of this commentary on it, what comes out of that vision, lasts us till about chapter 23. And so um, so as, as you might remember, back in chapter 8, there was this vision of the temple and the glory of God departing. And then uh, after we saw that, Ezekiel turns and, and by the word of God delivers a series of judgments on Israel, both those who were still in Jerusalem because the siege and the total exile hasn't happened yet, and those who, were already, those who have already been deported into Babylon. And what we see beginning in verse 1 is uh, the Lord addressing the problem of idolatry. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. The word of the Lord came to me. So just to stop right there, what's happening so far, Ezekiel is again sitting in his house and elders that are exiled with him come and sit down with him. And this is what the Lord says to Ezekiel. Son of man, these men, these elders, these leaders have taken their idols in have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces should i indeed let myself be consulted 
by them? And if you missed it, that's a rhetorical question from the Lord. His answer is no. These elders were coming to Ezekiel under false pretenses then. Coming to him and saying, let's hear what God has to say to us. We are pious. We are religious leaders. We want to know what the Lord wants from us. And the Lord says, I know their hearts though. And they're holding on to their idols in their hearts. A very interesting way of speaking. And a good reminder for us that when we talk about idolatry, if when we talk about idolatry you think only of sort of carved objects and uh, statues and things like that, if, if, that's, if that's the limitation of your definition of idolatry, biblically speaking, please don't be so naive. Uh, idolatry goes far beyond si- the, the simple images that are often involved in the ancient world. And so the Lord says, he, he goes on in verse 3, He says, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, anyone, so not just elders, of the house of Israel, who takes his idols into his heart, sets the stumbling block of iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with his multitude of idols. And so I want you to think this morning, in terms of idolatry, the way Christians define idolatry, is anything that uh, you... Play, anything that you determine holds for you your, your hope, your security, your salvation, uh, your reason for being and living and so on that is not God. Right? So it's I can't live without, right? And it's, you know, whatever comes after that. And in the sense of this thing that I have, this gift that I have, I, I feel it's mine by right and, if, and, and God's not allowed to take it from me or God owes it to me. And so what, what is then the root of this idolatry that's happening in Israel? Well, I want, I want just to remind you of something that I don't think you've missed, but I want to remind us all again. They're in the midst of judgment and exile. Exile means losing your home, being moved off the land to a strange land unwillingly. And so they were hurting. Now they were hurting. They were in exile because of their sin, make no mistake because of their rebellion against God and their rejection of God. But I think it's worth acknowledging that these people were hurting. Why do I acknowledge that? Because, again, not only were they hurting, they were hurting because they didn't get what they wanted. You'll remember the last few weeks as we've been talking about the false prophets in Israel and and now here as well in Babylon. What the false prophets are doing is they're saying, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Never mind what God has actually said He's going to do. And because, you know, because, well, Israel is like you and like me, if we hear from somebody the stuff we want to hear, we want to hear more of that stuff. Everybody follow me on that one? If somebody's saying the stuff we want to hear, we want to hear more of it, right? And so whatever, whatever that is for you can be a kind of idolatry. That if you finally found someone who is saying everything you want to hear, and so you amplify them so that you hear them all the time, Well, that's a good way of guarding your idolatry. Uh, Ian Duguid, who's a a New Testament scholar, excuse me, Old Testament scholar, says of this, he he says, oh, this is so good. So I'm going to read this quote kind of slowly because I want you to get it. Uh, Duguid says, they may not have given in to their flagrant idolatry going on in Jerusalem. These are the people who are with Ezekiel, mind you, in Babylon. But there was a more subtle form of assault that had affected even those in exile with the prophet in Babylon. Go on. They found themselves living in a broken and fallen world where their regular experience was of dislocation and disorientation 
where things were falling apart, where the center could not hold, and where life did not seem to make sense. The temptation they faced was to turn to the idols of this world as a means of, if not making sense out of the world, at least of numbing the pain, which is what we hope that idols do. Most of the time, the, the idolatries that grip our heart, the reason why we flee to them, is, is just because they numb the pain a little. And so hurting people, this is good to know, people who are in pain or who are in the midst of affliction or suffering are typically going to be more vulnerable to idolatry. People who have experienced failure, disappointment, death, grief, grief over the passing of a loved one, death of a dream, something you were really, really hoping was going to work out for you and it hasn't worked out. They are more vulnerable to idolatry and to false teaching. Now the world says, broadly speaking, if someone is a victim of pain and of deep pain, much of the wrong they do should just be excused. If someone's really hurting, I mean, you, you kind of expect them to do a bunch of bad, selfish things. And, and to a point, you, you just you put up with that. I would say that there is there's a time to be patient with uh, what someone might do in, in a moment of, um, of, of sort of ill-considered or, or a moment of, of passion or something like that. But, but my, what I'm trying to get to is to say sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone, even someone in the midst of real pain, is to say, I love you, I'm here for you, and you need to stop. I love you, I'm here for you, and you need to stop. And I will stand between you and this idol of yours until you force me to move. Because I love you and this is destroying you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so when this, this idolatry that threatens God's people, what is His solution? What is the Lord's solution to the idolatry that would threaten to grip my heart and yours, just as it gripped the elders in Israel as they were scared and hurting? Go to the next one, please. Verse 4. Therefore, speak to them. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idol into his heart, sets the stumbling block before his face. Notice the, the preemptive planning. This is not an accidental idolatry. This is carefully guarded, protected, concealed idolatry, which this is perhaps another sermon for another day, but elders, religious leaders, pastors always are going to do a better job of concealing their idolatry, which is why you have to look out for them and ask them the hard questions. And so if, if they are hiding their idols, yet they come to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes. All right, and what, so what does he say? Go on to the next verse, please. That I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me from, because of their idols. Right? And so the Lord is saying, my people are distant from me because of their idols. My aim, my objective, is to lay hold of their hearts. How, how does this happen? Verse 6, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols. Turn away your faces from all your abominations. Repentance is the solution to idolatry that the Lord gives here and frankly throughout the whole of Scripture. Now what does repentance mean? We have the sense that it means kind of if you're engaged in sin, you stop it. <laughs> and that's part of it. 
The word repentance, though, is, is more than just the recognition that maybe you're doing something wrong. Repentance, the word actually means turning around, okay? Turning around. Not yet. Sorry, jump back. Um, and so that's why we even have this language of turning their face away, right? So, I mean, think about this metaphor that the Lord is using for Israel. It's that they've got an idol and they're looking at it and staring at it and, and, and really just letting it kind of soak into them. And, and it might, that might not be literal. We might be turning their face, might be a metaphor. And, I mean, there's, a, <laughs> there's an instrument you can fit in your pocket today that if you stare at it for long enough <laughs> can become a kind of idolatry and sustain new patterns of idolatry in your heart. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come on. <laughs> so he says, turning their face actually is an, as an element of this idolatry. So that's not just, I'm sorry. That's whatever this thing is that I have my eyes fixed on, my heart fixed on, that I believe it'll give me significance and security and hope and protection and love. Whatever that is, turn your eyes from it, he says. Now, most of our sin, if we're honest, if we recognize sin in our own life, we are, James's word in the New Testament is double-minded. So it's like we have, we have two brains or two hearts going on. And one of them says, yes, like, this is a really good idea and I really want to hold on to this sin. And the other one says, no, I know that this is destroying me, right? And these two sides of you, as it were, are warring and at war with one another. And many of you, if, if you've been a Christian for more than five seconds, you've experienced this. And the Lord says to his people, you have to turn your face away from that which you're looking at. Okay, another verse I didn't put in the mix here but I believe it's in Thessalonians when, when Paul says, uh, let the thief steal no longer, right? And that's where he stops talking. Oh, wait, no. He says, let the thief steal no longer. Rather, let him put his hands to work and earn his bread and so on. So it's not just stop the thing. It's, it's take what you are doing, using your hands for sin, and use them for good, right? That's that turning away. That's repentance that's then lived out and acted out in life. The problem is, is that we are double-minded. We are double-minded. And one of the greatest weapons, then, that God gives us against that begins with repentance. And this is not only external repentance. And by that I mean not only, uh, you know, speaking the word in your room, or let's say in your car, you know, you're driving, and your mind is drifting, because, well, it shouldn't, but sometimes it does. And you realize there's you know, some sin in love, and you say, Lord, I'm sorry about that. I repent. Okay, that's a really good start. Repentance that is spoken is good. Repentance that is heard is better. Right? So heard by somebody else. Somebody else who you actually have to look in the eye and acknowledge your sin. And so we, we have to clarify, I, why am I going on about this? We have to clarify what repentance is because, if you go to the next bit, Burley, please. There are two approaches to uh, repentance and to struggle in life. Str when I say struggle, I mean struggle with sin and failure with sin. One of those, the first one, has to, it has a kind of behavioral focus, okay? A behavioral focus. It, it goes like this. Your problem is that you are a sinner. So far, so good. And, and your anger or your lust or your worry or your fear or whatever is sin. All right. Repent, therefore, and change your behavior. Okay, if you would just do what is right, then all the right kinds of feelings are going to follow. And on its face, for a lot of, 
for a lot of well-meaning Christians, I even think, that sounds right. The problem is this doesn't go nearly deep enough. It doesn't recognize the reason for the behavior. The idols and the false beliefs are in your heart and driving your desires. And so you're telling somebody, hey, just do the good thing. Stop doing the bad thing. Right? The problem is, is that they're already driven by what they're doing. The reason why you struggle with particular sins in a particular way is because there are idols in your heart and what you are confessing, to use a religious word, is by doing this, by loving this, by pursuing this, I will gain what is really important and meaningful in life. So if we only modify the behavior, we haven't gotten to that root issue of the heart, have we? And so like an example here would be, oh, if you, uh, for instance, if, if you have been through some kind of uh, maybe class or, uh, or, or book that teaches you how to handle your money rightly, like Dave Ramsey or something like that. A lot of people have been helped by stuff like that. That's really good. And it's good for people to learn good practices with their money. But you can have somebody who has a really, I mean, they're a really great steward of their money and their possessions and they give to the right maybe causes or even churches and their heart is still just as in love with their idols or their sin or even their mammon. And so another angle on this is what I'm going to call the therapeutic focus, which is telling someone your basic problem is that you just don't see that God loves you, okay? And He accepts you just the way you are. If you could just then feel good about God's love and about yourself, then the right actions will follow and you'll stop the, the, the bad behavior. Again, this approach focuses more on the feelings rather than the behavior, but it still doesn't go deep enough because it doesn't recognize that behind the bad feelings lies, again, desires, idolatrous desires in my heart. That, yeah, even if God loves me, fine. <laughs> I still don't have what I want most, which is to be like rich or, or beautiful or smart or, or funny or, or successful or whatever the idolatry is. If I don't have that, I'm not a worthwhile person. Both approaches fail to see what I'm going to call the sin behind the sin, which is idolatry. A better approach is to recognize, a biblical approach is to recognize that driving both of, uh, driving all our behaviors and our feelings much of the time are these, are these deep-seated idolatries. Our fundamental problem lies in looking to something besides God for our delight, our joy, our happiness. And this is why repentance is hard. Okay? I'm going to walk you through some reasons why I'm convinced repentance is hard and why we don't acknowledge that enough, that repentance actually is really hard. And so, um, so we'll go to then the first one. For the next slide, please. Yeah. In verse uh, 7, this is what we read. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, there's the problem, putting the stumbling block before his face because he hasn't turned his face away, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through pretending that he's coming to, to find out what God wants, what I want. I, the Lord, will answer him myself. Okay? So what's going on in this text is that, yes, this Joe Israelite is coming to the prophet saying, I want to hear what God wants. Right? He knows how to use religious language. He knows how to appear very religious. But the fundamental reality of being a human is that you always do what you want. Listen, you always, we always do what we want. Right? And some of you are thinking right now, you're like, nah, uh Okay? I'm on, I don't know, I'm on this stupid diet. 
And yesterday, I, you know, I wanted a hamburger, and I had a salad. I choked down a salad, right? That wasn't what I wanted. Okay? Yes, it was. Now, I know it wasn't kind of what your impulses and, and uh, cravings wanted in that moment, but the reason why you ate a salad in that moment is because you believe that the joy of health later is better than the joy of the burger now. And if you cease to believe that, you're going to go get the burger, I promise. Right? You always do the thing you believe will give you uh, the most joy. You always do it. Okay? Even the man who commits suicide does it because he believes that's what will bring him the most joy. Okay? And so we always do what we want. It's a fundamental reality of life. And, and, and so furthermore, that's, what, that's what's going on in Ezekiel. They're still holding on to the idols of their heart. They're still holding on to the thing they actually want the most. And, and what do we find? They're coming in, still have the stumbling block, still have the idol. Again, blaspheming God in this sense, coming before Him, pretending to be religious. Now, why is repentance hard? This is the second reason why repentance is hard, still here in verse 7, because we can be religious or spiritual. We can look religious or spiritual. That's what I mean. We can appear religious or spiritual without any repentance. And many people are kept from repentance because they believe if they maintain a certain set of spiritual feelings about God. That's the same as remaining faithful to God. We think it's the same thing as holiness, right? There's also a third reason which we begin to see as, as this uh, goes on and takes shape. I'm sorry, it's supposed to go to the text now. Uh, because we believe lies, I'll go ahead and read it, because we believe lies about God and about us. And this is what we see next beginning in verse 8. We can go to the next one. Yep. Oh, did I do it wrong? I'm sorry. I always mess part of this up. There we go. And I will set my face against that man, God says, this one who's lying. will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off. In other words, make him an example in the midst of my people. And you shall know that I, not your idols, am the Lord. Next verse. And of, sorry, and if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, so this is another prophet aside from Ezekiel. I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet and will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they will bear the punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike. So we're, still, we're talking again about those false prophets. And what you see here and what might kind of cause you to just trip a little bit is this, this word about the Lord saying, I'm going to, uh, sorry, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. What's happening there? Again, False prophets are always telling people the things they want to hear rather than the repentance that they need to hear about. And what the Lord is saying, and this is one of the most chilling ideas about divine judgment in Scripture, and that is that if we continue to pursue our sin and our idolatry, there comes a point, we don't know precisely when it is or how to know when it is, but there comes a point where the Lord, as it were, removes His hand of restraint and says, fine, you can have it which is itself a kind of judgment. Which is itself a kind of judgment. Sometimes the worst judgment that confronts us is getting the things that we want. And so that is what he's saying. He's saying if the prophet's going to lie, I'm going to let him lie. And it's what you want too. So I'm going to let you have what you want and be convinced by him. And both you and he will be under the judgment for it. And so this is the reality that we believe lies about God and about us. That's why, again, repentance can be really hard because, uh, because we, we uh, 
because we believe lies. Because we believe lies about God and about ourselves. I'll have more about that in a moment. My final point is because we're afraid to believe that God will actually transform us. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, you know, sometimes people come to the Lord because their house, speaking of themselves, you know, they've got a couple of rooms that could use some cleaning. And so they, as it were, invite in the Lord Jesus to say, Lord, I need some help with these few rooms in my house. And then Lewis says, but then he does something like he just starts knocking about the whole house and tearing everything up and, 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 and kind of gutting up the walls and like stuff you didn't ask for. And yeah, that's, that's because he's good. And because he's actually good to, to bring out your idolatry and sin and transform you to be more like him. God means to turn us around. God means to make us his own. His own people. His own people. That's the next Verse, verse 11, the, con- the concluding part of our text this morning. What's God's reason in all this? That the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves anymore with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, that I may be their God. This is why the Lord promises to give His people a new heart. Remember that? Because our, our idolatry is a matter of our desires. Because we always go after the thing we believe will make us happy. Our Lord knows that about us. That's why He promises Ezekiel that a new day is coming. Do you remember this? We looked at this text a while back, 1119. I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. Give them a heart of flesh. And you and I are terrified of believing that, if we're honest. for a lot of reasons. One is that change can be scary for a lot of us. And so the idea that the Lord would actually transform not just what we do, not just how we behave, not just how we feel, but what we most fundamentally want is really frightening. Second, we're terrified of believing this sometimes because I think in many ways we don't want to disappoint people. Here's what I mean. What if I talk about the peace of Christ to an anxious person and they believe me and then tomorrow morning they have a panic attack. What if, what if I promise deliverance from sin and, and transformation of desires from someone who's wrapped up in the LGBTQ movement and those desires don't go away immediately or maybe throughout the course of most or all their life? I mean, what, I think that's kind of the thing. When we start talking about transformation, I think if we're honest, we're, we get really scared about that. What if we make promises that don't get delivered? Let me speak to that briefly. Because Christians believe, uh, we, we've, we've got a doctrine for this. Uh, it's called sanctification. It's the idea that God um, transforms you and shapes you more and more into the image of Jesus, if you're a Christian, into the image of His Son, and changes your desires over the course of your whole life. And most of the time, this is really hard to see, okay? So that Psalm 1, the first psalm in, in, the, in the book of Psalms, talks about how, uh, how, how the Lord grows us like a tree. You know, that, that the, the, the justified man, the righteous man, is one who's like a tree planted by streams of water. Um, Stephen Renee talked about how recently they've been, they've been planting trees. And it's this act of faith that, that the trees are going to outlive them, you know, and and, uh, and, and if you're sitting in the kitchen and you're looking at these trees you just planted, nobody's sitting there going, look, I can see them growing. No, you can't. But you trust they're growing. 
That's the same way it is with people. Right? You, you often cannot see them growing. It's often not obvious to you. And it's often not obvious to you that you are growing and being changed. But you are. But how does that work out in terms of the struggle against sin and even besetting sin that seems to be hard to shake? There are, there are three things here I want to go over with you quickly. One of them is that sometimes there is what we would call a radical deliverance. Sometimes this happens at moments of conversion for new believers. Sometimes it happens in different uh, moments in the Christian life where as best you can tell, as best you know how to explain it to somebody, I was here, you know, May 21st, and I was the total opposite May 22nd, delivered from this, right? I mean, stories of that exist within Christianity from drug addicts and alcoholics and all, all manner of people, all walks of life, this kind of thing. And it does sometimes happen. And I'm reminded of when Paul talks about in Romans 8, in all these things we are more than conquerors, right? Through him who loved us. And, and for some people in God's kingdom, they have that kind of testimony where it's like more than conqueror, man. I had this thing that I was struggling with and it is no more, not even a hint. So that does happen. Other times, we face up against sin and temptation and we still feel very strongly the pull and the temptation of besetting sin for a season. And again, we don't necessarily know how long that's going to be. Sometimes God gives it to you to wrestle and struggle with something for a while. And then the question becomes, are you, are you honest enough with yourself and who you are to seek the help of other Christians in the midst of that? Okay? And so a, a verse for this would be uh, first, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.27 where Paul talks about disciplining my body, keeping it under control, right? Beating my body, beating my own body into submission as it were as I go to war against sin. In other words, sometimes faith, when, when you're faced with temptation, sometimes you just have moments as a Christian where it's like you almost want to say to your enemy, the devil, is that all you got? I'm good, right? It's just kind of, uh, just kind of a placid smile. And then sometimes it's war and it hurts. And the, the worst thing you can do in that moment and the lie that your enemy wants you to believe is that because it hurts, you must be doing something wrong, right? So for like real Christians, this is easy all the time. For you who are struggling so much, you must be doing something wrong. That's a lie. Sometimes it's given to us to go to war with sin. And I don't know if you know this, but war hurts. Right? It feels like death. Sometimes, option uh, or kind of category three, Sometimes there is a long-term, ongoing struggle. And I don't know why. But sometimes the Lord gives it to some of His servants to suffer for a very long time with some kind of particular besetting sin or affliction. And you especially need the people of God around you helping you to bear that up and make war on that temptation. A verse for this, when Paul tells his story, he says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, this thorn in the flesh that he talks about, that it should leave me. But he, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, the Lord said, no, I'm going to let you suffer and, and struggle with this, Paul. And what was the thorn in the flesh? We don't exactly know. I'm, I'm pretty well with the, uh, with the scholars and commentators who think that it was some kind of condition of his eyes which is not so much a sin struggle as a, as a physical affliction, but the same principle is here. And it's, it's really remarkable to think. Uh, and, and why do we think that? Well, there's another part in Paul's letters 
where he, he tells his readers, I know that you would have ripped out your eyes and given them to me if you could have. And so that leads some to think he might have had an issue uh, with his eyes or with his eyesight, perhaps, excuse me, speaking up, but not with his glasses. Uh, speaking of uh, pain in his eyes, and it, it, it makes you think, you know, back to the moment of his conversion, what happened? He was knocked to the ground and blinded, and then God sent someone to come and open his eyes, and something like scales fell from his eyes, and it makes you wonder if, if like Jacob, who wrestled with God and limped for the rest of his life, if the glorious vision of Jesus hobbled Paul's eyes a little bit for the rest of his life. It, again, that's not, that's not from the text. It's something to think on and why that might be. The point is, is that sometimes the Lord gives it to you to face an affliction in the long haul. And in order to rescue us from ourselves and from the grip that an idol can have on our heart, God, our Father, sent Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our brother into the world for us. And even though we might, in the moments of our pursuit of idols, be people who are double-minded and at war, there is nothing double-minded or split-minded or split-hearted about God's commitment and love for you. There's nothing half-hearted about Jesus' love for his people. He took on our flesh, and on the cross he took on our sins, and his final words were, it is finished, it is complete, the work is done. And that finished work is what gives you today, Christian, freedom from the idols that would otherwise destroy you. The power to threaten you was broken once and for all. That is, when your idols say, you only have meaning if, and then fill in the blank, if you have success, if you have beauty, if you have wealth, if you have children. Now we can simply take those lies to the cross. Because that's where God invites me to know the reality of my sin and that my sin is forgiven. Unlike the, I talked to you earlier about the, the behavior approach or the therapeutic approach, this, the, the reality of the cross frees me to recognize the full depth of my sin because I also can recognize the full depth of God's love for me in Christ. So take heart. I have good news for you. You are so much worse than you think you are. But you are more loved than you dared believe. More love than you dare believe. The result of Jesus' sacrifice is the salvation of his people, the restoration to full covenant relationship with God. And so how, how, how do you know if, if, you're, if you're brought into that, if you believe? It's really that simple. It's really that simple. For all the ways we want to sometimes bury ourselves in theology, there is, I mean, if you've ever struggled with anything like the doctrine of election, I've got good news for you. Believe in Jesus, and that's the end of your excuses, right? Because everything up until then is excuses, right? Any, any God who comes to you contradictory to your sin, opposing your desires, you are, I promise, apart, uh, apart from, from seeing the beauty of Jesus, you're going to make up a whole lot of excuses to, to reason, to, to rationalize why this God is, is, is not for you. And so because Jesus has taken on sin and judgment, all the remaining thing, all, the only thing left for like your sin and struggle to do is to drive you to it. And that's our great hope, that we will not remain in idolatry or sin forever, that, that sin itself will not remain our companion forever. That's what Ezekiel looks forward to 
in verse 11. To go back to the last verse of our text this morning. God promises, I'm going to do this, why? To bring them home. To bring them home so they won't go astray from me. Because of the sin bearer's death in our place, we look forward to the day when we will join the worship of heavenly Jerusalem. And there we will join with the whole community of God because the dwelling of God will be with His people. On that day, all the idols will be put to death and smashed. And we will be able to worship and serve our beloved Savior with undivided hearts. And so until then, it, it falls to us to, to make war on the sin and idolatry of our hearts that would otherwise consume us. The sin and idolatry that would invite us to live what looks like a rather religious and spiritual life, but is ultimately trying to find hope and salvation in, in anything else, frankly. And in all of our excuses failing to acknowledge that the real reason we don't come to Jesus is our own selfishness and sin. And so let today be the day of your salvation if you don't know Jesus. And if you do know Him, let today be the day when you have the courage to be honest with a brother or sister in the faith about the idols of your heart that grip your heart and that you want to see the Lord Jesus put under His feet forever. He will do it which is really scary. And so take courage, dear saints, because he will not let you go until he's finished. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, we thank you for the gospel that saves us. This is our great hope, our living hope, again, that we would be delivered from the evil one, that we would be delivered from our idols. We confess and acknowledge that like Old Testament Israel, we, your people, people are often given to that temptation to find idols in this world that would, that would grip our heart. Instead, Lord, we ask that you would be our strong redeemer and rescuer for your own sake, that we might be your people and that you would be our God forever and ever. Amen.